As we dive into the church at Pergamum and as we venture together for the next couple of weeks into some very hard letters that Jesus is writing to these churches, we're going to begin to see the warnings that he gives them. But the one thing that he continues to build one is their faith internally with themselves, them to, what, them to themselves, me, me, and me. And then he begins to then talk about their faith with one another. Because the reason the churches were falling apart is because they weren't doing what we just did. We are unified on the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have seen the Lord. I have been with the Lord. And because I've seen him, because I've been with him, my grandmother would say, you can't make me doubt him. I know too much about him. And one of the issues is we stop sharing the testimony of what the Lord has done. And so may we never be a place where we forsake the coming together of ourselves by making sure that Jesus is the reason we come together. And so today in Pergamon, we're going to see this uh, as we journey together. So let me, let me take a moment to share with you the context of Pergamon, and then we'll dive into the text, because some of the language in the letter won't make sense unless we understand the context of the city. So here we are. Uh, so we're in the city called Pergamon, which is about 40, 40 or 50 miles north of Smyrna, 85 miles off of the Aegean Sea. I'm uh, sorry, 16 miles off the Aegean Sea. And uh, in order to grab this, we need some theology from geology. And so here's this picture of Pergamon. This is a 3D rendering of Pergamon. And what you're going to see here is every one of these buildings is a temple to another deity. And we're going to walk through these in a moment. But every one of these temples is a temple to another deity. This, this, this uh, landmark right here is the theater. That theater would sit about 20,000 people in the center of the city of Pergamon. Uh, Pergamon, like I said, was situated on the west coast of Asia Minor, about 16 miles north of the Aegean Sea, 40 miles from Smyrna. Um, the city was founded by King Eumenes of Pergamon in the third century BC as a major cultural and political center. Now, it's important because it was one of the most powerful cities, rivaling Alexandria and Egypt and Antioch and Syria. And Syria, uh, Syria, and it's known for its impressive architecture, you can see. And mainly, this massive building up here that surrounds the Temple of Trajan was their library. And the reason that library is so important, there were over 200,000 books in the library of Pergamon. It was the place where wisdom and wealth resided. So here's how Pergamon failed and declined. So around 200 BC, King Attalus II of Pergamon established a, peace, established a peace treaty with Rome. So when this peace treaty was established, this is what helped the gospel spread. We talk about the Roman road. So the Roman road literally was the most traveled road in Rome. And Pergamum, Pergamon was one of those cities that was on that road. And so around 200 BC, King Attalus established a peace treaty with Rome. And that it gained, um, gained control over a substantial portion of Asia Minor. And this peace treaty began the expansion of Pergamon's expansion under the Adelid rule. So that's King Adelis, sorry, the second, but then the Adelid rule means that King Adelis III. And Queen Adelis III gave Pergamon and his territory to the Roman Empire on his death at 133 B.C. A part of his will, he left this kingdom, here this is what made it different, to the Roman Senate and the people. So this transfer of Pergamon from the kingship to the Roman Empire is important because then in AD 92, the emperor Domitian issued an edict to cut down all the vineyards in Asia Minor to mitigate competition with Italian vineyards, but he wanted to keep the landscape in Pergamon. And so what would happen is Pergamon was the first place an emperor decided to live. And we can see this in this one temple right here, we're going to go over it in a second, is the temple for the emperor Trajan. 
Now, this is important. It's going to make sense when we read the scripture. But I want you to see the landscape of what Jesus is talking about. The first emperor in Rome to live in a particular space outside of the center of Rome was in Pergamon in the temporal Trajan. Now, last week we talked about the throne of Satan in Ephesus, and we're going to see another one. So there's a Zeus throne, which is here, that was in Pergamon as well. And this is the throne of Satan for Pergamon. He was saying, Jesus says in the text, where Satan resides, because they were worshiping Rome over and, over and against Jesus. And this is where we believe Jesus is alluding to the temple Trajan, because now the emperor is living in the middle of the city in all of their worship. So think about it. Wisdom is surrounding where the emperor lives, where there is no temple for the people. That's why we talk about small groups. This is where small groups really began, where they would meet in circles and they would meet in homes because there was literally no place for them to meet because every one of these buildings was a temple to someone else. So let me show you. This is a 3D rendering of the entire city. You guys can see here they tried to rebuild the city as well. And so I think that's playing. So here we go. So then now let me go through all of these uh, different temples. So the first temple, you would come into Pergamon and you would see the first idol. It was a city full of idol gods. The first one here is a temple of Zeus. So this is a reconstructed Zeus. That's Zeus, the Greek god. Um, the ancient altar of Zeus was built on Mount, the king of Mount Olympus, where all of the gods and goddesses dwelt. He was the king of kings for them. And Zeus was the god of the sky, of lightning and thunder. He would lose, use lightning against his enemies. And it's said that he consorted with all sorts of mortals and gods and goddesses. So if you needed something done, you went to the place that had all power, and that's Zeus, right? So this is the reconstructed altar of Zeus and what we believe it would have looked like in that time frame. You can see the color. You can see the worship. This, we believe, was the largest altar in Pergamon. There was no altar for Jesus. It was an altar to Zeus. Secondly, there's the temple of Dionysus. That's Dionysus if you needed pleasure, you would go to the temple of Dionysus. She was the god of wine. She was the god of revelry. So if you needed some place to get drunk, you needed some place to go party, the way that they would worship at temple of Dionysus is you would go and pray about having children or pray about your pleasure to Dionysus. And then underneath the church, underneath the temple, where these little tunnels were literally, you would exit out through the tunnels and you participate in frenzied orgies. Uh, so much so the orgies were so strong that people's lives would be taken. Think about Mardi Gras on steroids. This is literally how they would worship. So this is the this is the reconstructed temple of Dionysus. So you would go worship here at Dionysus, and then in order to get out, you can see we're on the hill, you would have to go through tunnels. You can see one down here where there'd be frenzied orgies where people literally would lose their lives in the pursuit of pleasure, right? That's another temple. So imagine being a Christian. You have Zeus over here. You have pleasure over here. And then you got Demeter's uh, sanctuary of Demeter. So Demeter, if you needed food, you needed crops, you wanted a good harvest, you would go worship at the temple of Demeter. And at Demeter, she was the one who could guarantee you food on your table and a crop for the summer. The next one was Eclepsis. So Eclepsis is very interesting. So Eclepsis is the one, Pergamon was the temple to Eclepsis, the god of healing. Now this was one of the major places of healing in the world. People would come from all over the, the Asia, Asia to come to this temple. So in this temple, what they would do, it's, it's very interesting. I think this video, if it works, um, they would come to Eclepsis Temple, and this is the, re, the, the, the ruins of Eclepsis Temple. They would come there, and so they would give you drugs, 
And you would be in the bottom of the temple in these dungeons, these dormitories, if you will. And they would send non-poisonous snakes to you. And if the snakes chose you, that means the God chose you to be healed. The priest would then stand at the top of the tunnel and yell down encouraging words at you to pray harder for the gods to choose you in order to be healed. So if you think about now the, the sign of medicine that we have in our world, the rod and the snake has nothing to do with Moses. Christians have dressed it up because we didn't want to address that this, uh, this, this sign of medicine did not come from Moses. It came from the temple of Eclipsus. The reason I can prove it to you is this is what we believe the God of Eclipsus looked like. He held a rod with a snake around it, right? And so these snakes would choose you. If you were chosen, you would be healed. And he chose to heal you or he didn't choose to heal you. The reason we can also say this is a person who was a major worshiper of, 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 of Eclepsis was the founder of modern medicine, a brother named Hippocrates. Doctors still take the Hippocratic Oath. So Hippocrates was a major worshiper of Eclepsis, which is where you believe this snake and rod symbol came from because he was a major worshiper of the main house of medicine in that time. Next was the temple of Athena. The temple of Athena, um, Athena, if you needed wisdom, you went to Athena. She was the one who would guarantee and give great military strategies to Rome to win its wars. This is a reason why some of the language that Paul uses in the book of, the, the book of, the book of Romans is so impa impactful because he is combating their worship of Athena. Right? She's the one associated with the wisdom and, and warcraft and building great, uh, building, great, um, building great armies. And so this is what the entrance of the Temple of Athena would have looked like. This is what they would have gone to. So I want you to understand, like, they would come into, come into the city to go shopping, and you would literally look around and see all these temples. And the last one I'll mention to you is the Temple of Trajan. So if you wanted to affirm that Caesar was lord over your life, if you wanted to affirm Caesar, you would come to the Temple of Trajan. This is the main temple in all of the city. And in Temple of Trajan, they, they, um, they took great pride because Trajan in 29 BC was the first city to allow a temple to be built to a living emperor. Now, this is so important because as we're about to read the letter, you're going to see some of the language. And I love Jesus because Jesus was so, like he threw so much shade in the nicest way. And we're going to see in this letter how he just shaded this entire city. Because um, what he's showing us is imagine growing up in Pergamon. You have everything to be healthy. You have the best hospital in the country. You have a 200,000-volume library to your disposal. Zeus lives there. Trajan lives there. Athena is there. Demeter is there. Dionysus is there. And then some crazed man from the ghetto of Nazareth shows up and says, I have all power. Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to trust? Your whole life. I got snakes to make sure I'm healed. I got Dionysus. I got Demeter. I got Zeus. My entire life, I have everything I need. And then Jesus shows up. All the healing, all the pleasure, all the discomfort, all the guidance, all the worship. And so then you start hearing about Jesus and these Christians that start meeting. And you come to meet with them and to come to realize that the gods on the hill that you go to and you worship, that by going to them, you are insulting the one true God who died for you. The one true God who died in your place. Literally, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and rose again, that you too will be with God forever. You can live your life worshiping the one true God who has everything plus some of all the gods you've been worshiping your entire life. That you don't need ten different gods. All you need is one. And imagine growing up in Pergamon and how difficult that was. 
Jesus, knowing that about them, some 60 years after his resurrection, writes them a letter and says, you're going to have to go against commerce, pleasure, politics, and status quo, but I'll give you something none of those gods can give you. And this is where Jesus writes this letter. You have your Bibles. Go with me to Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse number 12. And hear the word that Jesus sends to the church of Pergamon. He says these words. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, These are the ones of the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There's some of you who have held to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and fight you with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give them hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. We'll break this text down. Christ's character, Christ's commendation, Christ's correction, Christ's exhortation, and Christ's promise. And let's see what God has to share with us today. Christ's character, verse number 12, look at the text. The angel of the church, right, these are the ones, the one who has a sharp double-edged sword. If you have your Bibles, you can go to it. Go to Revelation 19. Let me show you this. Revelation 19 gives us more information on this. We can see the language of Jesus' sharp double-edged sword. I'm going to preach Revelation 19 in a couple of weeks um, once we get through all seven churches. Uh, but Revelation 19, that whole hallelujah, salvation and glory, honor and power unto the Lord our God. That's verse 2, I think, of Revelation 19. Here's why God has all power. Look at Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, verse 11, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. Verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire, his head like many crowns. He had a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. This is the power of Jesus' words, to strike the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when Jesus says he's a sharp double-edged sword out of his mouth, that means the word of God, the word of Jesus, is a sharp double-edged sword. And what Christ at his second coming, coming out of his mouth, when he pronounces judgment, is going to be a sharp sword. This is the same sword, we'll see, that has the authority to destroy entire nations. And Jesus, through his word, will rule those nations then with a rod of iron as he treads on the winepress, which is the fierce wrath of God, which is the word of God. Now, the word of God, I want you to understand, it's not just you reading your Bible. The word of God is what comes out of God's mouth. That when God speaks, God is a man, that God should not lie, that God's word, what God pronounces, what God says, is sharper than any two-edged sword. 
So Jesus says, coming out of our mouth, so every, remember this, every single letter that Jesus gives us in Revelation, he introduces himself in a particular way. Remember the goddess Athena, the goddess of, the goddess of warcraft, the goddess of war. He's literally now saying, I am stronger than the god that you worship. You don't need to go to Athena because I don't even need a sword to get you. My mouth will cut down an entire nation. Jesus says, here's what I understand. That's why memorizing scripture is so powerful. You don't have to fight anyone. God's word will do the hard work. So literally, the word of God, the words of Jesus are a two-edged sword. Here's how a two-edged sword. On one side of the sword is judgment from Jesus. It cuts both ways. If you're in Christ, judgment from Jesus will give you new life. You will stand after judgment. If you are not in Christ, Judgment from Christ will bring you death because you do not have life in Jesus. Now, that statement should get our attention the same way it got the church of Pergamon's attention, that Jesus' words will cut you. What side are you going to fall when they cut? That's verse 12. That's his character. So then that's the character. He establishes who he is. So this is his commendation. Verse number 13. Verse 13 says this is what he commends him for. Commends him for. He says, I know where you live. This is where Satan has his throne. Remember the emperor Trajan. This is where Satan has his throne. Yet, here's the commendation, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. He reminds them again where Satan lives. Now, this is important. So look what, let's break this down. So I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Remember last week we talked about the altar of Satan. Well, here Jesus is talking about emperor Trajan. He said, literally, you can point to where Satan lives. Can you imagine living there? Where it's not a matter of like, man, they're demonic. Man, that's Satan. You can literally point to where Jesus says, Satan lives there. All over the hill you see these little, all their gods because the goal of Trajan living in, in, in Pergamon was to do one thing, was to demonstrate the power of Rome. Trajan takes up Pergamon as his residence. So this sword here, so this power of Jesus' sword not only talks about Athena, but when he talks about then the two-edged sword now also speaks to Trajan, all this coded language. I hope, I hope this is helpful. So it's talking about Trajan. So there was a rule that Trajan established in the second year of his tenure. And what Trajan established was is that you can kill someone by the sword and no one can question your decision. So literally, people will go around, if I don't like you, I would take my sword and behead you, and there was no jury to ask questions. So when Jesus comes along and says, I'm the one with a two-edged sword, imagine what it's like now. I can see Trajan. I can see his leaders. I can't see Jesus. What is Jesus' sword going to do with a jury that can't ask questions? Jesus says, I know where you live, where Rome has his throne, where Satan has his throne, where you believe that Trajan has more power than me. But here's where I commend you, because with that authority that Trajan has, he says, you never renounced your faith in me. Not even the days of Antipas. Antipas, we believe, was a bishop that was anointed by John. And Antipas was killed by being burned in the middle of a brazen bull altar. And imagine the church. They watched their pastor get killed and burned for one reason. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago that people of other faiths would come to where the Christians are worshiping and literally send demons into the church temple. 
Well, Antipas one time decided as the demons were coming in, as you saw people who were afflicted with demons coming into church trying to bring demons into the place where they were worshiping Jesus, what did Antipas do? Antipas began to cast out demons, and that pissed off Trajan. So they said, we have to kill the one who casts out demons, and they burned Antipas in the middle of the city. He commends them that while you watched your pastor burn to death, you held on to your faith. A lot of us can hold on to faith when our jobs get weird. A lot of us can hold on to faith when, I don't know, your hair is weird. You got a hangnail. All of a sudden, this Jesus hate me. I got a hangnail. They, these Christians watched another Christian who did what Jesus told them to do get burned at the, burned in the middle of the city in the, on the top of an altar where they would sacrifice. And he says, here's why I commend you. You were steadfast. The word there, you held fast. The word there literally means you clung on to Jesus and you did not let go when the world wanted you to let go. They clung to Jesus. The word there is they held fast. It's like this. I remember my sister one year when she had her birthday party, and we went to an ice skating rink, and I hate ice skating. I'm going to tell you this. I, I can rollerblade. I can skate. I hate ice skating. I don't know why. I see why the NHL got like four black people. I hate ice skating. And so we went, we went to the Pettit Ice Center in Milwaukee, and we got out there. All her little friends were going around on this thing. And literally, here's her brother who was playing football, playing basketball at the time. I was like 6'2". I was bigger than most kids in my age. And I'm on the side, literally shaking, holding on to the railing, go, trying to go around this rink. I got around the rink one time took them stupid shoes off, and gave them right back to the person. I said, I will never go ice skating again. Because <laughs> the entire time, it wasn't enjoyable, because all I did was hold on, shaking to the wall. Jesus says, I commend you, because when you could have let go of me, you didn't. And you realize you will never fall as long as you hold on to me. William Barclay puts it like this. He says, a Pergamon, it was a place where men were required to the point of death to take on the name of the Lord and give it to Caesar and not give it to Christ. And for a Christian, there is nothing more satanic than to reassign Jesus' name. He says, you didn't let go. But then he gives correction. He says, there's some of you who didn't let go. And then verses 14 through 15, he says, but nevertheless, I do have this against you. This is his correction. There's some among you, not all of you, but some who hold to other teaching. They hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So then they ate food, sacrificed the idols, committed sexual immorality, and likewise you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Jesus rebukes them. He t gives two names and two things. He first of all gives Balaam's name, and he gives the Nicolaitans' name. Now I want you to understand this. The etymology of Nicolaitans goes back to the word Balaam. So whenever you see Nicolaitans or Balaam in the book of Revelation, you got to read three names in conjunction, Nicolaitans, Balaam, and Jezebel. They're all the same thing. Nicolaitans, Balaam, and Jezebel read in conjunction. And what he's saying here, so when you read Nicolaitans, it's sexual immorality going against God. Literally, I desire self-indulgences more than I desire Jesus. That's every time you see Nicolaitans, Balaam, or Jezebel, that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. So when he says here, you're adhering to the teachings of Balaam, what are they? Well, in Numbers 22 and in Numbers 24, we get the story of Balaam. 
And so I wanted to, because I knew it was going to be tense here, I wanted to give something fun to this. And so I started this thing called Storytime with Pastor Justin. And we're going to play this video really quick, which I think will explain the story of Balaam in a way that I hope is liberating and a little bit fun as we get into the hard parts of this text. Welcome to Storytime with Pastor Justin. So check this out. Balaam lived in a place near Moab. Now, Moab was ruled by a guy named Balak. King Balak was nervous because he had heard all these stories about God's special people and, how the Israelite, and the Israelites, how God had freed them from slavery in Egypt, and how the Israelites had taken over all these different cities like Jericho. King Balak, he was afraid. Oh my God, Moab was going to be next. So Balak made a plan one day to send his message to Balaam. Now, Balaam was a sorcerer, or he was one who would bless or curse people. He was a prophet. So we don't really know whether or not his blessings or cursing worked, but the king believed they did. So Balak put a curse on the people of Israel. Like, maybe I'll win this battle over them. I don't know. Whoever you bless is blessed, whoever you curse is cursed. So check this out. Normally it was Balaam's job to do whatever the king said, but this time God spoke to Balaam and God said, you must not put a curse on those people. I bless them. And he realized that's the real reason Israel was winning all these battles and taking over these cities is because God was blessing and keeping them. So anyway, Balaam sent a message back to the king like, yo, king, I can't curse them. Even when the king offered Balaam all this money and power, Balaam said, you can give me all the silver and gold in the king's palace, but I ain't going to do nothing because I'm not going to go against God's commands. King heard that. King was like, nope, I'm going to get you. So Balaam goes out to meet the king to like compromise. And then along the way, his donkey would not let him go. The donkey saw an angel standing on the road. The donkey ran off the road and it confused Balaam. So Balaam got out, hit the donkey. Donkey was like, we ain't going nowhere. Hit the donkey again. And then when he hit the donkey, he saw an angel. The angel runs into a wall, crushing Balaam's foot. So now Balaam's hurt and he's angry with the donkey. The donkey sees the angel the third time. He lays down in the middle of the road. Balaam hits the donkey again. God opens the donkey's mouth and talks to Balaam like, why have you kicked me? Why have you hit me? Think about it. Animal starts talking to you. It's unbelievable, but all things are possible with God. Anyway, don't hit your pets. So the donkey makes him look foolish, and the donkey's like, I'm your donkey. Why have I, you've ridden me since birth. Why would I make you look foolish? And at that moment, Balaam sees an angel standing at the end of the road, holding a sword, ready to fight Balaam. Realizing the angel had a message from God, Balaam bows his head with his face to the ground, like, oh my God, I'm sorry, I've sinned. The angel's like, go along, but I want you to bless the people. Balaam goes along and he blesses the people seven times. God got Balaam's attention by making the donkey talk. Fun stuff about Balaam. That's story time with Pastor Justin. So that's the story of Balaam. So that's the fun part of the story. That's Numbers 24. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go to Numbers 25 with me. And I'm almost done. I, I just, I love teaching this stuff. Go to Numbers 25. So that's the fun part. But I don't know if you have heard these like preachers trying to be relevant, like bring your A to church and like bring your donkey to church, all this type of stuff. It's so out of context. But that's the story of Balaam. That's the fun part. He goes and he blesses Israel. Go to Numbers 25. I want you to see why Jesus brings him up in the book of Revelation. Numbers 25. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 25. Right? So Balaam does this. That's the funny part. And then all of a sudden... Balaam comes around Numbers 25, while Israel was staying, 25 verse 1, in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality and Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal, bowed down to these gods, and Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. 
So what did the Lord say to do? Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, take the leaders, kill them, expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. And so Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must be put to death, those of the, who've been yoked to Baal of Peor. Here's the problem. God has always called his people, you and I, to be distinct people. We are to be distinct from the world for the good of the world because we trust God. But now, verse 25, chapter 25, verse 1, in spite of the seven blessings that God gave them, they began to commingle with the world. So much so, they invited people in to sacrifice to their gods. They people ate together. They bowed down to false gods. So Israel has yoked themselves, and God gets angry because here's what Balaam did. While Balaam told them and blessed them on behalf of God, he said that there also are other options. When you read through Numbers chapter 24, he says, there is God, but I'm not denouncing any other God. He gave them options to turn their backs on Jesus, on God. So Numbers 25, what did they do? They turned their backs on God. If you notice the progression, here's how sin works. Here's how idolatry works. Look at the progression. Look at verse, chapter 25, verses 1 through 6. I really want you to see this. This is how idols begin to be built in our lives. Number one, they invited the sin to come into their lives. You see that? They invited people. They invited sexual morality. They invited the Moabite women. They invited different things. They invited sacrifices. Number two, then they ate with the people they invited in. And then they began to bow down. This is how idolatry begins to happen in our lives. You invite it in, you get intimate with it, and then you begin to bow to it. I want you to look at your job. I want you to look at your sports teams. I want you to look at your car. I want you to look at the people in your lives. I want you to look at the people around you that you've invited into your life. You ate with them. God didn't create idols in your life. You did. And the Lord's anger burned fiercely. So if you want to see why Jesus quotes this, in the same book you're in, go to chapter 31. I want you to see this. Go to Numbers 31, verse number 13. Go to Numbers 31, verse number 13. This is what happened. This started when Balaam blessed and didn't give them other, gave them, sorry, and gave them other options besides God. They ended up commingling with the Moabite women, engaging in sexual immorality, began to honor other gods. And then Numbers 31, verse number 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Numbers 31. Moses, Eliezer, the priests, and all the leaders of the community went to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of the thousands, the commanders of hundreds who returned from battle. Verse 15, have you allowed all the women to live, he asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident. Because of that, look what Moses says, because of their unfaithfulness, a plague struck the Lord's people. What caused them to sin in Peor? The prophet, Balaam. Balaam gave them options that were not Yahweh. And because of that, Balaam continued to trespass against the Lord in the land of Peor. So while he spoke blessings, he also caused them to sin. Let me say this about pastors and false prophets and stuff. It was funny. This week, it was interesting. So we had Hell Sunday last week. This is purely not on my script because I wrote this a couple days ago, then this happened. We had Hell Sunday last week, and uh, somebody shared our church service and called me the Antichrist. And I was like, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of things I've been called. I ain't never been called the Antichrist before because we love calling pastors false prophets. Let me tell you how to find a false prophet. 
if the scriptures are not going forth and they're leading people to follow them and not follow Jesus, that's a false prophet. If you are not calling out sin, that's a false prophet. Just period, point blank. We love calling pastors with mega churches false prophets. They're not false prophets. They have results. Like, I want to say this very clearly. They're every single pastor you don't like is not a false prophet or the antichrist. Balaam, in this case, is telling them there are other gods you can worship. That's false. If you go to a church where they're beating you up about getting a bunch of money, worship money, money's going to come to you tomorrow, money coming to me right now, that's false. That's that's. That's a false prophet. A prophet that tells you to do something or bend over backwards, that's a false prophet. Just because you don't like someone who preaches doesn't mean they're all of a sudden a false prophet. So please, I'm going to tell you this. You want to check and see if I'm false or the Antichrist? Please take my sermons and cross-compare them to the Scriptures. Please, I get reached out for so many other things. Please meet with me and tell me, Pastor, you were wrong. I would love to go through the scriptures and double-check the scriptures to show you that I want you to know there was one true God, there was one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And if I ever do it wrong, may the Lord strike me from this position. In Jesus' name. That's how serious I take this, and every person doesn't. But just because you don't like someone who preaches doesn't mean they're false because what happens is we end up doing that to the wrong people and the false ones keep building a following. So please double check my sermons. Please double check it all because Balaam walked back on his words. God is good, but he's not the only God. And here's what that did. It sent a plague on a whole nation. That's what's happening to the church at Pergamon. And so because of this, the same thing was happening in Numbers is the same thing that's happening in Revelation 13. Jesus says, you have allowed what happened to Balaam, what happened in the Old Testament, to happen to you too. You all are compromising that I am good, but I'm not the only. You're compromising. God is good, but let's try these other gods too. And hear me, it's not the world that kills the church. The church kills its own church. Whenever we compromise the truth of God's word for popularity, whenever we compromise the truth of God's word because we don't like it, whenever we compromise the truth of God's word because it makes you feel uncomfortable, because you're not shouting every time you read it, you are literally telling God, God, you're good, but let me try something else. A compromise allows God in all of his goodness to crush his people. He sent a plague because they compromised on how good God really was. And church, I understand we live in a world where it's easy to compromise our faith. Here's why. I'll give you two reasons. I think one reason it's difficult to live with our faith sometimes is culture gets really hard to live in. Culture don't like Christians. Like, I know this sounds like really fire and brimstone, but church, it's, culture don't like Christians. It's very easy to bow at the altar of so many other gods in America nowadays. I want to bow at the altar of politics. I want to bow at the altar of social media. I want to bow at the altar of American capitalism. I want to bow. Imagine the people in Pergamon. You, you are trying to trust God who you can't see. Or you can go bow at the altar of world-class health care. You can go bow at the altar of the 200,000 volume library. You can bow at the altar of Trajan and make sure that if you don't like someone, you can kill them and they can't do anything to you. Or you can trust Jesus who these people killed. Culture gets hard to live in as a Christian. 
And so it's easy for us to compromise our faith. Well, I'll bend a little because God knows my heart. I'll, 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 I'll hang out with them because God knows my real intentions. I'll say it, I'll do it, I'll go there, and I'll just ask for forgiveness later. No, that's what the world taught you. You don't live to be forgiven. You live because you are forgiven in Jesus' name. And too many times we participate in things and ask God for forgiveness after. Well, no, I live forgiven. There's some things you don't do because you know Jesus, and Jesus wouldn't do that. And the church said amen. I know this isn't easy preaching, but this to me, this sermon is mature preaching because it's only going to get better. Because not only is culture hard to live in, but then what we start doing, number two, is what the people in Pergamum did is they begin to double check God. Do I really have to do what God said? I mean, did God really say, did he really mean that? Like, you know, look at the context. Did he really, did he really mean that? Did, can God really do all things? Because it's hard to live in that culture, and some people gave in. Jesus is trying to teach us how to fully embrace heaven in the midst of great pressure on the world. So what do we do if you've compromised? Look at verse number 16. Here's this exhortation. This is how to correct your compromise. He says, repent, turn. Here's why. Because he says, if you don't repent, here's what I'm going to do. I'll come and fight you. I want to I back up. This is like... It's fire and brimstone, but it is what it is. He says, repent or I will come and fight. I don't want to be on the wrong side of a fight with Jesus. I don't know about you. You can can be on that side if you want to. He says, repent, Jesus says, or I will use my sword and fight against you. That's the exhortation. There's nothing more to really put there. Ain't no context. Ain't no Greek to break down. Turn away from the places you compromise, the idols that you created. Or Jesus says, I'll come and fight them. And I don't want to be in that war. So what's the promise? If you say yes to Jesus and you follow through on destroying your idols, what's the promise? Look at verse number 17. He who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says. Because here's what I'll do. I'll give you hidden manna. I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on it. Here's what this means. What emperors would do is when they would invite you to a party, they would send you a piece of marble with your name engraved on it. So Jesus says, if you trust me, you won't get a stone from the emperor. You'll get a new name from me. That it doesn't matter what the world calls you. I'll send you an invitation to be with me. And not just that. Remember the temple, uh, I think the temple of Dionysus, the temple of pleasure. What people would do is after the orgies, they would leave out and there was manna available to them because that was the crop they were going to eat. That if you participate in the orgies and you, uh, you al- aligned yourself with the foolishness of the temple of Dionysus, you would have manna. So people would literally leave out full of not only their pleasure, but then full of food and there'd be manna all in their hands. They would have manna. And so what Jesus says, there is not enough manna that any temple can give you because I'll give you hidden manna that only I have access to. So whose stone do you want and whose manna do you want? I think we're so consumed with living our lives like it's golden or living life on the earth that we forget that one of these days we're going to die. What are you worshiping? And will you continue to, what the scripture says, participate in that worship in heaven? Because let me tell you, the world is going to fail you be really clear, no matter how amazing a person is, mom, dad, brother, sister, they'll fail you. Here's how they'll fail you, not moral or ethical failure. We're human. We're going to die. 
and they're going to bring grief or pain. Everything in this world is going to fail you. Because death is the separation of your soul from its your body. So when you look at a casket, you see an empty, lifeless piece of flesh that will disintegrate back into the earth. The question is not what you did on your first death. The question is, what are you doing with the second death? Where you're going to live forever. Where are you going? <clears throat> so the thing about idols... I'm finished because that's the whole text. And I want to confront our idols because for some of us, when you walk into your bedroom, when you walk into your house, it looks just like the city of Pergamon. You got 20 different idols that you go bow to in order before you go to your work day. You got to bow to the altar of your spouse. You got to bow to the altar of your children. You got to bow to the altar of your job. You got to bow to the altar of your money. You got to bow to the altar of your sports team. You got to bow to the altar of your, your, your opinions from other people. You got to bow to the altar of the mirror that we go in and we look just like Pergamon. No, it's not Zeus. It's not Dionysus. It's not Demeter. It's people's opinion. So you buy new clothes, not because you wanted them, but because you're trying to get a particular opinion out of people. And when they don't give it to you, you feel like the whole night was wasted. The Raiders win, your whole week is amazing. The Raiders lose, everybody's going to hell this week. Don't believe me, when the Packers lost, it took me like 45 minutes to shake off the idol of when y'all beat my Packers. It sounds funny, but there's so many altars that we bow to that Jesus says, listen, I am the one true God. So how do we name our idols? Let me show you four ways to name your idols, and I'm finished. Four ways to name your idols. Here it is. Number one, an idol is anything that promises a life of security and joy apart from God. An idol is anything that promises a life of security and joy apart from God. Idols aren't normally bad things, but they're good things that we've made ultimate things that you believe will guarantee you joy and security. Ask yourself this question. As long as I have this, I'm happy. There are too many times I've been in marriage counseling with people, premarital counseling, and people begin to realize, we talk about idols, how much they worship their spouse. So you don't want, you're marrying your God. They'll fail you. If you're not honoring God in your marriage, you're gonna worship your spouse and when they fail you, now God doesn't like you. God says, I was never in that. Because you think your joy and security comes from your spouse or your money. Jesus says, an idol is anything that promises a life of security and joy apart from God. What in your life are you clinging to so desperately that you can't imagine life without it? Be careful, because that could be your idol. Number two, idols engage in the deepest emotions of your heart. Idols are something that keeps you from being able to enjoy it at all. You panic and fret about losing something so vital so you can't rest. For example, some of the wealthiest people in the world are so paranoid about their money because everything about it is tied to their emotions. So when you gain more, you get more scared because let me tell you this, nothing can sustain the weight of your soul other than God. I'm going to say that again. Nothing can sustain the weight of your soul other than God. I want you to think about it like this. If you, this the, the way you can discern what these idols are in your life. If you said to yourself, if I ever lost this one thing, I could never survive. What is that idol in your life? What possible loss not only makes you frightened but makes you feel like you're going to die too? That's connected too hard to your emotions. 
Number three, idols need to be protected. All these idols in Pergamon had temples and security. Why? Because they were afraid that something could destroy them. And the reason I'm showing you the ruins of Pergamon is because something came and destroyed them. Idols need to be protected because they don't have any real power. God does not need to be protected. God protects me. I don't protect God. But idols need temples. Idols need security because idols don't have real power. What are you protecting obsessively in your life because you're afraid of the power that it has? What are you protecting so much because you have to protect it? Because you can delineate or determine the power that comes from it. Idols need your protection. God protects me. I don't protect him. And fourthly and finally, idols demand sacrifices to keep them happy. Idols will make you happy if you sacrifice for your idols. For example, if your business is an idol, you will sacrifice your integrity to climb the ladder of success. If acceptance is your idol, you will sacrifice honesty and lie to receive affirmation. If romance is your idol, you will walk out on your spouse as soon as the spark seems to fade. But an idol church is like a fire. It never says that's enough. It just keeps asking for more. The idol, the altar of idolatry is terrifyingly insatiable. The more you sacrifice for an idol, the more it will demand from you. What is that in your life? What part of yourself have you sacrificed on the altar of an idol? Where do you keep filling pools to cut corners or make excuses? Don't fool yourself to think that your last sacrifice is your last sacrifice. That's idolatry. Church, this is, this is real. This is mature. Maybe that's sports. Maybe that's work. Maybe that's family. Maybe that's your spouse. Maybe you have created different idols. And you haven't done it intentionally. It's just kind of happened over the course of time. It's that Psalm 1 effect that you walk, you stand, you sit. You walk, you stand, you sit. That you begin to look up and notice that your life looks just like Pergamon. I will sacrifice here. I will give here. I will pour my soul out here because I like Jesus, but I have some other gods. Well, how do we kill our idols? You know what's interesting? I was studying this for a few days, like, God, how do we kill our idols? How do we destroy them? And it's amazing because the only scripture that tells you how to deal with your idols is 1 Corinthians 10 verse 14. And it tells you to do one thing, therefore, run from them. That's it. So I was like, God, how, how do I help people give them like a one, two, three thing? And then you know the one person in the scriptures who tells us how to deal with our idols was Jesus. Grab your Bibles. Go to Mark chapter 10 and I'm finished. Go to Mark chapter 10, and look what Jesus does with idols. Mark 10, verse 17 through 27. This is how you deal with your idols. As he was setting out on his journey, verse 17, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, I've done all of that. And Jesus looks at him, loved him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. So go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And the man was disheartened. Do you see this? Go, sell all you have, give it to the poor, follow me. Imagine Jesus with 12 men who've done the very same thing that he just asked his brother to do. And their response was to drop it and follow Jesus. Verse 22, this man was disheartened. He went away, 
for he wanted to worship his possessions. Jesus said to the disciples how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, not just having wealth, but worshiping their wealth. The disciples were amazed at his words. He said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person who wants to worship it to enter the kingdom. They were astonished. Said, then who can be saved? Jesus said, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. So how do you deal with idols? Well, look how Jesus deals with them. First of all, he, ca- he calls out the idol in love. Look at the text. He loved him and said, hey, man, go sell what you have. How do you deal with idols? I want you to look in your life and call it out in love. What is it that you are worshiping more than Jesus? Call it out. Don't dance around it. I talk about this analogy all the time, how we have a rug and we sweep things under the rug and then we begin to wonder what our lives smell. No, tear the rug back and call it out with love. This is what I'm worshiping and saying God can't do. Not only did he call it out with love, but then secondly, Jesus compares himself to his idol. I want you to think about it like this. If you're wondering the things in your life that are idols, I want you to say this statement so you can realize how foolish those idols are. Jesus is not stronger than blank. Now help some of us fill it in. Jesus is not stronger than the Packers. Holy crap, that sounds terrible, but this is the idols. Jesus is not stronger than my degrees. Whew, yes he is, but... I worship my degrees. Jesus is not stronger than a Facebook status. Woo, wait, he is, but this is what we idolize. Jesus is not stronger than my $100,000 salary. Wait, he is. Jesus is not stronger than my spouse. Wait, he is. Jesus is not stronger than my doctor. He is, but, but have you seen how idols work? Jesus compares himself. Am I, is the kingdom of God not better than this? And the man walks away. Because he, what in, I want you to compare in your life, the places in your life where you feel you've said that statement honestly. Jesus, you're good, but you're not stronger than that. That's what you got to kill. And then here's the revelation. Jesus calls it out in love. He compares himself. And then he doesn't take the idol away. Because Jesus didn't create the idol. He says, you cut it down. Here's the thing about idols, church. Jesus didn't build your temple. Jesus didn't build the idol. You did. And so because you started it, why don't you go end it? What in your life is an idol that God is telling you, go destroy that altar today? No, 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 go. Repent. I dare you to drive by your job. God, I am sorry for the temple of Kaiser. Yeah, I'm sorry for the, I'm sorry I worship at the temple of my spouse. I am sorry I put my family in competition with your goodness. And I promise you, Jesus will start doing things you even know were possible. Colossians 3 puts it like this. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things in the earth. Why? Because you have died and your life is hidden in Christ and in God. The first death is when you said, you said death to your flesh and yes to life in Jesus. The second death is the one where you're going to decide where you're going to be for eternity. Many of us in the room have participated in the first death. Where is your second death going to lead you? May you kill the idols now so you can participate in heaven's reward. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed.
I want you to ask God one question. We says in, <clears throat> it says in verse number uh, 17, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is the Spirit saying to you? I want you to ask the question, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? If you have an ear, hear what the Spirit is saying to you. What is the Spirit saying to you? What idols have you created? No, seriously, what idols have you created? This is just you and God talking. I don't want to beat you up. I'm not telling you to tear yourself down. But I challenge you to just say, God, I, I, am, I repent for these idols. I repent for idolizing people's opinion. I repent for idolizing my past. Come on. I repent for idolizing what I think about myself. I repent for idolizing my pride. I repent for idolizing a, a pastor, a preacher. Come on, I want you to be honest. I repent for idolizing my spouse. I repent for idolizing my job. I'm sorry I put this in competition with you. I want you to think about in your life, I want you to repent for this. The people you have put in middle between you and God whose lives have been the byproduct of your idolatry. God, I am sorry for worshiping my husband. They give me joy and security, but God, my joy is in you first. God, I repent for idolizing my having children. My womb is not mine, my womb is yours. Father, these are mature saints today. Father, everybody can't come to you honestly like this. But we thank you that when we do, you listen, you incline your ear. So Father, for those of us in this room who are laying our hearts out to you, I pray that you in this moment come and tap them on the shoulder and grab the areas of their brokenness that they're recognizing. The places, God, we've been angry because we've refused to bring you our hearts. The places, God, we've been frustrated and mad because we have refused to bring you our hearts. Father, right now, I give you my friends today. And God, I pray that you, before you come, hallelujah, with a sword of judgment to strike them down, I pray, God, that you come and see their repentant hearts giving you every one of their idols. So God, take the idols that have held their emotions and I have their emotions and balance. Come and take that idol there. Every idol, God, that have held them hostage to their past, come and remove it. Every idol that has caused them to be insecure, to be frustrated, to be down, that has caused them to cry, not tears of worship, but to cry because of fear and animosity and pain. Father, I pray you strike down every idol the way that you ruin Pergamon. I pray you come and strike down the idols of my friends. And God, we don't know how to live without them. So God, teach us to number our days. Teach us to live without the idol of wealth, the idol of riches, the idol of gold, the idol of friends, the idol of opinions, the idols of our jobs, the idols of our salaries, the idols of our friendships, the idols of our families, the idols of our spouses. My joy is in you. My security is in you. My emotions are in you. My peace is in you. God, and remind us, tell, take us back to your word. 
that we never make the mistake of building altars to look like Pergamon, but we have one altar to one God who is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, the way, the truth, and the light, the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd, the true vine, the one that you said you are. Thank you for moments, God, where you come and separate the wheat from the tear. Now, God, only leave in our lives that which will yield great harvest. We don't need a temple of Dionysus to give that to us. We don't need the temple of Demeter to give that to us. We don't need the temple of Kaiser. We don't need the temple of our sports teams. We don't need the temple of our friends or family. We just need you. So God, as we sang earlier, open the eyes of our hearts. Bandage the broken places that cause, hallelujah, that cause us to build idols. Bandage the insecure places we have with your word. Bandage, God, the scriptures that have been misused on our lives. Hallelujah. That we might see your grace in the difficult places of our Bible. So, God, the scriptures we have refused to read, take, them, take us to them in the next two weeks. The books of the Bible, God, we have refused to understand. Take, God, restore marriages by reading Solomon together. Hallelujah. Restore joy by reading Philippians again. Restore our peace, God, by taking us to Titus. God, restore our minds by taking us to your gospel. Restore our hope in you. God, there are gifts of leaders and prophecy in this room. So, God, take them back to the minor prophets they ran away from. Take us to the word that we've ran from. Take us to the word that we've danced around so, God, we can see that you are who you said that you are. And for, as for me and our house, as for me and my church, as for me and my community, there is one God, there is one Lord, there is one faith and one baptism. We honor you today because your word is true. Your presence is real. So, God, thank you for trusting us to carry the title of a child of God. In Jesus' name we pray. If you're grateful for forgiveness, if you're grateful that God is a God that still listens, would you take a moment and give God praise? Come on, I just, come on, if you're grateful that God still forgives.